Shalom, and welcome to another episode of Israel Policy Pod. I'm Eli Koaz. And I'm Evan Gottesman. Eli, we're in this protracted stay-at-home period. What have you been doing to pass the time, other than, of course, recording this podcast? Mostly I've been working, but when I have a minute here or there, I love a good old sporkle quiz. Is that that uh, quiz website that you keep sending me? Oh yeah, that must be it. Yeah, we recently did a quiz about the countries that do not recognize Israel. I think I won that one, Eli. I believe I beat you convincingly, but let's not get into that. It's an interesting, it's an interesting mix of countries. I mean, regardless of who the true winner is, although. I mean, you have Djibouti there. You have obviously your usual suspects, uh, Syria, Iran. Right, you have a lot of the Arab Iraq. states. Saudi Arabia. You also have Cuba, North Korea as kind of your communist Cold War holdovers that don't quite fit the mold of some of these other countries. Also some African countries probably broke off. Yeah, like uh, Comoros, uh, Mali. These are countries that also probably broke off relations in 1973, 1967. Somalia. And then you obviously have the Northern African countries. Somalia Somalia is an Islamic country. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yes, but Mali as well. To the extent that it's a country. Mali as well. And speaking of Israel's strained relationships with some of the other countries of the world, we're recording this podcast on the same day that the ambassadors of 11 European countries, including some major powers like the United Kingdom, France, Germany, held a video call with Israeli foreign ministry officials warning them of consequences if West Bank annexation were to move forward. Of course, we don't know exactly what that means and what these different outcomes and consequences could precisely portend, but it's clear that basically any other country outside of Israel and the United States under the Trump administration specifically isn't really pleased with the idea of West Bank. I mean, you probably have a, you probably have a few. You probably, oh, well, 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 if it isn't our policy director, Michael Koplow. How did you get there? <laughs> we're mid podcast we right now, but but you're just the person we were looking for. Oh, we're already recording. Sorry. <laughs> well, I guess that's good timing, man. Exactly. Evan was just talking about the reactions from the EU ambassadors with regards to annexation, and we would love to get your take on the international reaction thus far and what you expect in the next few months as the July 1st date approaches? I think the international reaction thus far is what you'd expect, which is public, if not condemnation, then um, certainly public expressions of concern. But I'm not sure that there's going to be the, there's going to be much of a response beyond that, at least initially. I don't think that any of these European countries that are expressing concern are going to go so far as to place sanctions on Israel. I think that they will protest publicly as they have been, but that they're not going to really expend much political capital to try and prevent annexation, because doing that would require a campaign of, of real diplomatic isolation that I don't think these countries are willing to, to carry out. But I, I do think there will eventually be some long-term consequences because it's important to remember that a lot of the European countries that are warning the Israelis now about 
not annexing the West Bank, pay for a lot of stuff in the West Bank. They pay for housing, they pay for schools, they pay for roads, they pay for all sorts of infrastructure and public health facilities. And they do that now for the Palestinian Authority. I think they're far less likely to do that for the Palestinians when it simply means defraying the cost of Israel's permanent control of parts of the West Bank. So I do think there are going to be consequences, but they may be more behind the scenes and uh, less announced um, than any big major and public moves at the outset. obviously a lot of these countries, they're in the midst of uh, the COVID-19 crisis. Clearly, the thought of West Bank annexation or parts of the West Bank from Israel in a few months from now is not a uh, number one priority. But do you think we could see that change? And once Israel does, let's say, if they proceed with annexation of parts of the West Bank, is that when you expect for us to see these these changes that you're talking about? I think the changes are not going to come until Israel actually annexes the West Bank. But e- even when the COVID-19 crisis is either over or, or somewhat abated, European countries have a lot of other things to worry about. You know, this isn't this is never top of mind for them anyway. But even when coronavirus is over, countries are going to be dealing with all sorts of lingering fallout for a while, particularly on on the economy. So I don't think this is going to be something that's top of their agenda. And unless annexation sparks uh, an all out war in the Middle East, which I, I don't think anybody thinks that's going to happen. Certainly, certainly I don't. Um, or unless it does something to create another direct crisis. You know, you think about, for instance, the oil shocks after the 1973 war. I don't see anything like that happening as a result of this either. So I think that any immediate fallout is obviously going to impact Israel, the Palestinians, the Jordanians in particular, perhaps the Egyptians. But I don't think that as, as much as annexation is, is a very foolish, unwise thing to do, and as much as I would like to see it not happen, it's difficult to make the case that it's going to directly impact the Europeans in in such a harsh way that they are going to feel the need to immediately do something to interject I think themselves. there's also two complicating factors here that are almost contradictory in the way that they could impact European policy on this. The one thing is that a lot of things that the European Union might want to undertake as a bloc need to be adopted by consensus, and that's something that Israel could have just one friendly European leader, and that's all they need to block some kind of statement or some kind of further action. We already saw that uh, with a statement from the European Union's chief foreign representative, uh, Joseph Borrell, was not adopted by the EU as a bloc. And Israel, of course, has friendly relations with what's known as the the Visegrad group of the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, uh, Slovakia. Um, So that's something that could, even if there was a will to do something further, probably would keep that in check. On the flip side, though, I think that there's always going to be European sensitivity around particularly the idea of West Bank annexation because of the history of territorial integrity problems in Europe. I mean, the idea that Europe would in any way be seen as giving its uh, blessing even tacitly to an 
Israeli expansion beyond formal expansion beyond its internationally recognized borders could then, for example, be used as precedent by Russia against the European Union's uh, eastern members and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, for sure, they're going to be sensitive to it. And th that first problem you raised, uh, it's why uh, today the ambassadors of a number of countries, um, but not the European Union as a group, so I think it was the, the UK, France, Germany, Belgium, Italy, Spain, the Netherlands, uh, there were some others in there too, um, reportedly issued a, a formal diplomatic protest to the Israeli foreign ministry, but as you point out, it wasn't done in the name of the EU uh, of the EU entirely, because there are countries that are not willing to sign on to that. And um, one of Prime Minister Netanyahu's, if you want to call it an accomplishment, um, one of his diplomatic accomplishments over the past few years has been to very effectively create a split within the European Union and uh, and get some of. Uh, some of the countries that are run by more right-wing nationalist governments uh, on on his side versus other European Union states. So uh, I think you're 100 percent right, Evan. It, it's going it's difficult to envision any type of unified European European action. Um, and and ultimately, even if the Europeans are sensitive to the notion of territorial integrity uh, as it pertains to the West Bank, Ultimately, there's only so far they're they're willing to go. I I think as I said, I, I don't envision direct sanctions. You can see them limiting cooperation in in scientific areas, technical areas, what have you. But I think that the reaction to any West Bank annexation moves from the Europeans is going to be uh, muted when you look at the actual consequences. Right. Although you, you bring up the idea of uh, scientific agreements, for example, and it's noteworthy there, you already had the Horizons 2020 agreement, scientific cooperation agreement, and it was controversial in Israel because the Europeans didn't want to extend it to the West Bank, and Netanyahu ultimately caved on that. Um, yeah, I agree with you both. If we move to the one country that can have influence on Netanyahu, obviously being the United States. We know where the U.S. administration stands on the issue, pretty much let Israel do what it wants, it seems. But then we have uh, the remarks from uh, the Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, who said that he would not consider moving back to the embassy um, after Trump moved it to Jerusalem. Biden did come out, though, um, against West Bank annexation. He is definitely not in favor of it. Does that fit in at all to Netanyahu's calculations moving forward? The time frame he has between July and between November elections, it's not, it is a few months, but it's still to pass annexation through the Knesset and to get everything approved. It won't happen overnight. So does Netanyahu take a step back and say, wait, let's see what happens with the U.S. election? Or would that, from his perspective, is that wasting a historic opportunity? Let's start with you, Michael. How does Biden weigh into Netanyahu's calculation? It doesn't appear that Netanyahu is going to take a step back based on anything that Biden has said. Biden has been pretty clear for a while now, including at APAC policy conference, which is certainly the most prominent stage that he could have that he could have said it. Uh, he's been very clear that he is opposed to annexation, and obviously that has not prevented. Netanyahu from from moving forward in, in the ways that he has moved forward. I think that Netanyahu is probably calculating that 
even if Biden wins in November and he's dealing with the president Biden come next January, that any type of blowback from the United States is going to be something that he's able to manage. And I think that he's likely emboldened by the fact that he spent a, a pretty difficult almost eight full years um, during the Obama administration tangling with President Obama. And he probably assumes that Biden is a bit more uh, to the right and a bit more hawkish on Israel issues than Obama was. And that if he was able to, to withstand the Obama administration, where the worst thing from his perspective that happened was a U.S. abstention on a U.N. resolution uh, in the very last month of the Obama presidency, he probably calculates that um, whatever cost will come from a from a President Biden uh, is not going to outweigh the benefits in his mind of getting to annex parts of the West Bank. I think that perhaps his calculus would be different if he were looking at a potential President Ilhan Omar, <laughs> um, but he's not. You know, he's 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 looking at a he's looking at a potential president President Biden, a guy he's known for decades, who has you know even even with his, even, even with his. and if I recall on a visit from Biden as his time as vice president, I think the morning he arrived and he was giving a speech, and then there was a big announcement of a big settlement project. The morning of his visit, obviously Biden was offended by that, but we didn't see major repercussions from the United States. So clearly Netanyahu is not, Joe Biden doesn't seem like a big concern. Precisely. There was, you know, in that incident, there was a, there was a 45 minute call the next day from Secretary of State Clinton, um, reportedly chewing Netanyahu out. And, and that was basically where it ended. So I don't mean to suggest that Biden is wavering on annexation. I, I don't think he is. I think he's been very clear on his opposition to annexation. I think Netanyahu is, is um, much like with the Europeans, weighing what the figuring out the the difference between rhetorical condemnation and what the tangible consequences will be, and then weighing what he thinks those are against what he views as the benefits of annexation. Yeah, I, I would just add here that I think that Netanyahu probably sees himself as in a fairly good position vis-a-vis -vis the Democratic field. I mean, even Senator Bernie Sanders was never quite explicit with how he would take punitive measures against Israel if annexation were to proceed. He mentioned conditioning aid, uh, but he wasn't really specific about it. And even on the Jerusalem embassy, um, you know, the... The fact that Biden has said that he's not going to move the embassy, first of all, isn't news. This is a position that he had taken several months ago and has re-entered the news cycle because of, I believe, a conference call this week. Um, and then Sanders also wasn't quite clear on what he would do at the embassy. He said that he would consider moving it if Israel were to do something totally draconian or something that he really strongly opposed. But again, he didn't really lay out clear benchmarks for what would merit moving the embassy. And I have to imagine, I mean, it's beyond the realm of possibility now, but had Sanders been the Democratic nominee and then going through a bunch of what ifs and hypotheticals, and if he ended up in the White House, I don't think he would have moved it either. And that's Netanyahu looking at the leftmost contender in the Democratic primary field before Biden became the presumptive nominee. What about Marianne Williamson? <laughs> I think Marianne Williamson would have moved the embassy to Israel to a different planet. 
she'd, she'd at least at the moment be organizing a, a meditation session to uh, get up enough good karma to come down. That's doesn't have to deal with yet. That's true. Listen, the, 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 power, the power of the mind is, uh, is indeed powerful. <laughs> also crystals. Okay. So we were talking uh, a lot about Benny Gantz joining the Netanyahu government, the coalition agreement, and we've been waiting and waiting, and it still hasn't happened. And we're expecting a ruling from the Israeli Supreme Court early next week on whether or not indeed Netanyahu can form a coalition because of his indictments. Can you give us your assessment if there is a likelihood that the Supreme Court could rule against Netanyahu being able to form the coalition, which would kind of automatically send Israel to fourth elections? And I don't want to know how the reaction would be um, against the Supreme Court. I think Israel could just go absolutely berserk. Or is this pretty much uh, a done deal? I'll be really surprised if the Supreme Court rules that Netanyahu absolutely cannot form a government. Uh, Attorney General Mendelblit uh, submitted a brief today where he argued that Netanyahu should be allowed to form a government because uh, because Israel's basic law and the Knesset um, have never explicitly prohibited and indicted MK from forming a government, becoming prime minister, and so because uh, because that hasn't been prohibited, therefore it should it should be it should be allowed. Um, I think the just like in the United States, the Israeli Supreme Court is oftentimes um, under attack and has to be sensitive to political forces, even if judicial rulings are supposed to be about the law and nothing but the law. And my guess is that the Israeli Supreme Court knows just how controversial it would be if it ruled definitively that Netanyahu could not form a government. Um, I think that it's likely that they will they will strike down some of the more unusual elements of the agreement, but I think ultimately they're going to provide a path for a unity government to go forward and for Netanyahu to serve as prime minister, and we'll probably leave it up to the parties to decide whether they want to go, whether they want to go through with it you know, in, in light of any, any changes that they, that they make. But I don't think that, I don't think that they're going to and disallow it entirely. 36 ministers is likely to be formed. And you did hear that, uh, Benny Gantz. Well, they actually didn't, didn't, didn't they already give up the, it's not going to be 36. Cause I think they already gave up on the oh, Norwegian law, uh, provisions of it. I think, okay. I think it puts it back down. Okay, to but Benny Gantz did announce yeah. that his... In any case, thir- 32 was always the starting point for the government. It was going to yeah, expand later Yeah, it was going to be 32 on. now and then 36 af- after... Uh, right. Yeah. Exactly. After the Norwegian law. But um, uh, Benny Gantz did announce that 20% of Kahola von salaries would go to uh, to charity. So I guess that's something. <laughs> that that is that is indeed something. No doubt, the over one million people vote people who voted for Kacholavan three times in a row. That's what they were. That's what they were hoping for. For it's 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 their it's their rebate. It's their rebate aside. That's what they were hoping. It's their rebate for voting for for Gantz. He's going to donate one percent of his salary for each percent one percent of the West Bank annexed to Israel under this government. Right. Or, or perhaps, perhaps they could have donated it um, to the the Sarah Netanyahu uh, household household expenses fund, and then that would be a way book. to get her to leave. Yeah, wow. exactly. Eli, did you did you make did you make her her no bake? I her was no trying bake cake? to, but Evan interrupted me and said we have to record a podcast. So, 
I'll take uh, that. With now, I, I didn't I didn't see the recipe, but because it's no bake, I you know I assumed that um, it's probably a, a vegan of cake, course. right? Then, then frankly, then frankly, I don't I don't know how you I, I don't know how you didn't go tempted. out and make it I right away. Something I was tempted, but I held back. So podcast first. Mm-hmm. We invited you on the podcast. Very happy that we did. Um, <laughs> I, I'm always I'm always happy to be invited. It really is an honor to talk to okay, well, talk to both of you. I know you have a run to get to, so uh, we won't keep you <laughs> we won't keep you too long. My my, my deepest okay, appreciation well, for that, Eli. That. Uh, Evan, any any uh, final uh, thoughts? No, just savoring the moment because it's probably going to be a long time before we speak to Michael again. So. <laughs> right, because, because because it's not like I'm sitting in. It's not like I'm sitting Thank in my you, Michael, for joining the podcast partway through. I think you're our first guest to join, not at the beginning of the podcast, but partway into it. But it just shows how Israel Policy Forum has been dynamic and, and versatile in adapting to respond to the imminent threat of West Bank annexation. I would expect that you might even join two-thirds of the way into the next call between European ambassadors and the Israeli foreign ministry on annexation. So, but thank you. Happy to, happy to join any, any time, gentlemen, from, from the beginning good. or from the And middle. we hope we'll catch you on our next episode. And we want to remind you to tune in to our Tuesday video briefing series. Our upcoming program is going to be Tuesday, May 5th, with Gilad Hirschberger and now recently added just today, Khalil Shikaki of the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research. And you can find registration information for that on our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org. And that's going to be 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Tuesday, same as it is every week with all of our Tuesday video briefings. So definitely check that one out and we'll see you next week. Yeah, bye.